I'm Henning. I work for Zalando, and today's talk will be about Kubernetes on AWS. Big disclaimer, it will not be about EKS. If you use EKS or want to use EKS, you will also have the possibility to take something away from this talk, I hope, uh, but it will not be about EKS. Zalando, so we are in the US, but we are a European company, so you probably don't know us. Uh, we are Europe's fashion platform, the European online platform for fashion. And we are in 17 European markets, have quite a few employees, 14,000, and maybe an interesting number from this Cyber Week, this year's Cyber Week, and Black Friday, we had over 7,000 orders per minute as a peak, so not so small anymore. Um, Zalando was founded in 2008, one of the European unicorns, uh, people would say. But let's go to technical topics. When we started our cloud journey in 2015, we decided to keep it simple, go to AWS and create a thin layer around AWS, which we call Stups, and which allows us to run Docker on EC2. Um, this is just maybe for some um, history and uh, explain some of the choices we made later on. And in this uh, setup, teams have full access to their AWS account and full responsibility to operate their Docker on EC2 applications. We also decided to have all AWS accounts completely separate from each other. So uh, when one team wants to talk with another team's uh, application, um, then this is all going via public internet and OAuth and REST APIs, SSL, TLS, of course. And um, this leads us to kind of the current situation. We have um, like a pre-Kubernetes setup, uh, which is called Stups, and we have our um, Kubernetes setup. For Stups, teams have full responsibility. They have uh, their own AWS account. For Kubernetes, this um, AWS account is a little bit more coarse-grained, and uh, not only one team is in an AWS account uh, or a Kubernetes cluster. For Stups, um, all instances run the same AMI, which we uh, provision in Kubernetes. We, as a platform team, run um, this for the teams. Um, and in Stubbs, teams have full admin access. And in Kubernetes, mainly we uh, try to have a hands-off approach so developers don't uh, really deal with, with lower levels or need to operate, um, if, hopefully, if they don't need to. Um, yes. And in Kubernetes, you get a lot of stuff out of the box and, and things we add on top. So this uh, being said, is, um, this is our current scale. So we have around, around about 400 AWS accounts, uh, 140 clusters um, with Kubernetes. And um, as you could already see, we are not so small anymore. Um, so we have also quite a number of developers. And this is mainly our, number, our developers, uh, like kind of each icon is one, uh, one person. And as you can see, uh, the blue icons are the majority. So these are the uh, developers who have production Kubernetes access. Um, this is maybe a thousand uh, people. And then we have also people who only have access to the previous infrastructure uh, here shown in, the, in orange. And of course, there are also developers who have no like, cloud access. Maybe they are just working with mobile apps or do other things. So for context, uh, we have um, these 1,200 developers roundabout and uh, more than 200 teams. And we, um, we is of course like a, not only me, but a, a group of people, um, we operate the platform, they work with their developer infrastructure, uh, the Kubernetes clusters, etc. Also important uh, for context is um, this end-to-end -end responsibility what teams have. So you build it, you run it. You heard the keynote from Banner this morning, and he co co coined this term already in 2006, so it's much older than DevOps. And I also like to avoid this, this term DevOps because like, this is, I think nobody needs this. You build it, you run it, end-to-end -end responsibility. And this also means, um, if you have read this nice Stripe increment uh, Mac about on-call, uh, there's this quote you can find. Uh, when things are broken, you want the best people on-call. Uh, to be able to fix things. So like developers should be on call for their developers and this is uh, also the case in Salando. Okay, so this is a little bit for context. Now uh, to Kubernetes. When we started with our Kubernetes journey, so going away from just Docker and EC2, 
but with uh, going with Kubernetes, we already knew we needed to create quite a lot of clusters um, because we have a, quite a number of developers and uh, wanted to reduce the blast radius, so create multiple clusters. This also meant one goal was uh, there cannot be any manual operations because we, um, if we have one uh, Kubernetes team with eight to nine people and 1,200 developers, then we don't scale, right? So we cannot rely on manual operations doing things. We also wanted to avoid pet clusters, um, meaning uh, we don't want to tweak individual clusters for our customers. We want to rely on automatic mechanisms um, so we don't need to treat clusters individually and give them names and be very careful about them. Of course, reliability is very important. We want our customers, so our internal developer development teams uh, to trust um, their crit critical workloads with our infrastructure. Auto-scaling is important, so we have this daily um, traffic curves in our e-commerce business. We want to keep the latest Kubernetes, um, uh, the Kubernetes clusters up to date, and of course, we also want to um, keep things cost efficient. So what we decided to do is um, creating clusters always in pairs. Uh, so I already said we have 140 clusters, and uh, barely half of them are production clusters, and the other half are non-production clusters. And um, they badly then have the production cluster has a name, FUBAR, for example, and the non-production cluster has this FUBAR test. This test is a little bit misleading. doesn't mean that tests are only running in this non-production cluster. just means non there is non-production and production clusters. Um, also, the scope. This is a little bit more complicated, and this is the hardest part about creating clusters in Zalando, is knowing what is the domain or scope uh, we create the clusters for. So we create them for cost centers, for product domains. So we, you can imagine we have a logistics something cluster. We have a cluster for personalized marketing, etc. So, but this is not well defined. So this is always something um, we need to tweak and dis discuss. So coming to the architecture, um, we create CloudFormation stacks. And uh, we create at least three, of course, more. Uh, so we have master nodes as uh, one CloudFormation stacks. We have worker nodes as CloudFormation stacks. And we keep etcd outside of master nodes with a separate stack. So this is actually similar as I learned, like EKS does it. Um, EKS also has under the hood in the control plane um, etcd outside of master nodes with a separate autoscaling group. The nodes all run Ubuntu with a pre-baked AMI. Um, uh, we provision as a platform team. And then going a level deeper, um, this is how it looks like. So of course we have some availability zones. Uh, we um, run mostly in Frankfurt, so we have three availability zones. Uh, we have an ELB in front of the master nodes, uh, terminating also TLS, and with a nice TNS domain name. And this is basically the Kubernetes API endpoint. And then the worker nodes. And here, important to see, there is an autoscaling group for master nodes across availability zones, but for worker nodes, we have um, autoscaling group per availability zone. And this is relatively important. We did this differently beforehand, but this is important if you use EBS volumes um, because they're AC bound and the cluster autoscaler then can um, really decide which autoscaling group to scale up. So autoscaling group per AC. Um, then we have a REST API, we call it cluster registry, where we keep all the metadata for the clusters. And this is how it looks like as an example. So of course the cluster has some ID or identifier. Uh, then we have the domain name or API server URL. Uh, then we have some arbitrary config items uh, which we might need to tweak um, and which are different uh, between clusters. We have the environment, I already mentioned this is only production and non-production. Uh, the region, uh, the AWS region, and then um, basically different node pools we can define. So by default, we use something like M5X large, I think, um, but we can have multiple node pools. So teams also use GPU instances. So uh, there, is, uh, there are clusters where we have node pools with GPU instances or other uh, teams have high CPU node pools which are only scaled up in the night uh, for some CPU crunching. So this is the metadata. Then the actual cluster configuration is completely on GitHub, so you can check it out. You cannot create a cluster with it, but you can check how we do it. We do this to engage with the community. And um, this is uh, where you find also the uh, CloudFormation stacks I mentioned earlier. So you find 
um, the cluster, um, um, the main stack, you find the etcd cluster, CloudFormation, and then also the different node pool um, CloudFormation stacks. This is how it looks like, and you see in this manifest directory a lot of different components we provision on Kubernetes. Um, this is also why it might be relevant, um, this talk, for EKS users, because in EKS you don't get much out of the box, so you will still provision a lot of different um, applications or infrastructure services on EKS, and um, here you can take a look or uh, what we do in provision. So, um, how to provision a cluster in the Kubernetes setup? We saw we have a metadata and REST API, we have um, all the manifest and cloud formation stacks on GitHub, and um, now we have a cluster lifecycle manager, which is also on GitHub, uh, which provisions clusters and also updates them. So this brings together the metadata information and the actual configuration, the configuration being in Git and the metadata in the Postgres um, cluster registry. And what it does, it basically reconciles this. So if someone changes metadata or a Git configuration, then it will apply CloudFormation or update CloudFormation stacks and update um, the Kubernetes manifest. So let's have a look how this looks like uh, for a typical update. So right now we update to 115 um, our clusters. So how this works is that actually um, there's a branch, a dev branch, and we create a, a PR where we update um, Kubernetes to 115. Usually this is just like changing all these version numbers and Docker images, but it might also be other settings you need to change. So some developer creates a feature branch, creates a PR, and then this PR is actually completely tested end-to-end, -end, and um, then this change moves through different branches. And um, what are these branches? They're called Dev Alpha Beta Stable, and uh, they are actually um, kind of channels. Uh, we took this term from CoreOS, and um, badly all changes go through these different channels. And this is how we make sure that things are tested on multiple stages, and at the end it really comes to our production uh, most critical clusters. So dev is only playground and development clusters. Alpha is um, our own infrastructure cluster, which is highly critical, but it's good to have it very early in this um, stages, so we can find things very early, because if you just roll out things to clusters where nobody looks at or nobody sees this uh, tricky um, details, uh, this doesn't help. Beta is then all test clusters or all non-production clusters, and then the end, all production clusters. Okay, so this is how we roll out changes, and um, if you do a PR, then um, the end-to-end -end tests run, um, so we use GitHub, as you can see, and uh, we get this feedback for end-to-end -end tests, and you also have the four eyes principle, uh, um, so we need a manual human approval to merge this PR. Let's have a look at end-to-end -end tests. And end-to-end -end tests are, in our case, running conformance tests, upstream Kubernetes conformance tests, which you can find in the official Kubernetes repo. Um, not so easy to run them standalone, but you find an example in our repository. Um, so this is quite a lot of um, tests, and this already gives you basic confidence that this is actually uh, a working cluster. We also run stateful set tests, so also including rolling updates and EBS volumes. And we also added Zalando-specific tests, so we test our own ingress setup, we test external DNS, we test pod security policies, uh, we test our own webhooks, admission controllers, etc. Uh, so this is all part of the end-to-end -end test running for every change through these different channels on PRs. The actual execution of end-to-end -end tests looks like this. So in the background, uh, we create a new cluster. We create this cluster with the old configuration, so not the changes in the PR. Then update the cluster with the changes in the PR. Then run the end-to-end -end test, and then of course, delete the cluster. This all takes maybe 50 minutes for, for this change. Um, but this is, of course, giving us high confidence that whatever we change and update to 115 or do other changes, um, that this uh, works. By the way, um, as you can see, we create the cluster with the old config and then update it. Uh, this is very important to actually che check that this update path works and not just that you're um, change works with new cluster. So we already had incidents with that, so this is a learning for that. 
Okay, upgrading Node, that's an interesting topic. I showed you how we do this change in Git, but how is this cluster really updated? Um, let's first have a look at the naive strategy. Naive strategy meaning we have an autoscaling group for our worker nodes, has a certain size, and now we want to update nodes. We use our pre-baked AMI, so we have kind of immutable node approach, and uh, we need to roll the nodes. So let's uh, do plus one on the autoscaling group, fine, get a new instance with a new AMI, the new version of Kubernetes or changes, drain the old node, and um, get a new node, and do the next drain for the next node, and so on. So pretty naive, pretty simple. This is how we can do rolling node updates. But what happens if you run stateful workloads? So we run Postgres on Kubernetes, uh, just as an example, it could be also something else. Um, so what happens here? Okay, we have master and always at least two replicas. They might be on different nodes, hopefully. And now if we drain the master node, uh, like the node where the master pod is on, uh, we have a problem because we have a small um, unavailability of uh, Postgres. So this naive uh, rolling node upgrade strategy is uh, not really handling this case well. And even worse, if we do this naive rolling node up, um, update strategy, we could fail over n times, right? If we have 10 nodes, you could always fail over to uh, the next node, which will be updated next. So you will have multiple disruptions. So this is not really a good strategy. Okay, so what did we do to get the elephant on board? Um, yeah, we created the operator, of course, how you would do it on Kubernetes world. You can find it on GitHub, uh, definitely recommend it. I mean, of course you can use RDS and so on, but uh, maybe you also run somewhere else and not only on AWS and also check it out. Um, but let's have a look what this operator does. So we have um, the different pods, um, replica and master pods. And um, now if we drain or want to drain a node, then what happens is actually this will not work because pod, uh, pod disruption budgets prevent it. So pod, pod disruption budgets define how much unavailability you can have for a certain application and basically this will prevent this drain to remove this pod. But instead, the Postgres operator proactively evicts not the master pod, but actually a replica, moves this to a new node, and then promotes it to master. So this badly, um, the Postgres operator op orchestrates um, for us. And now the node which needs to be drained, as you can see, has a replica and no longer a master. So we can safely uh, terminate this and can say, okay, go ahead, evict this and be done with it. So here just an example of the pod disruption budget, which makes part of this process work. Um, we badly define that this uh, cannot be um, unavailable um, as a master pod. Okay, just quickly going through um, the node update again. So we have three availability zones and we also have to think about EBS uh, volumes, right? So we have nodes, we have pods, we have uh, persistent volumes, so EBS volumes. And um, then if we want to upgrade um, and do a rolling update for nodes, we actually get new nodes. And then what is uh, here interesting or important is um, if we now drain this node, these pods, these two pods you see here, which are on this drained node, they can only move to availability zone A, right? Because it's uh, using persistent volumes, which are using EBS volumes, which are zone bound. So they move to the node in A and the other one can move somewhere else because it doesn't have a um, EBS volume. Okay, and then we get a new node and that's it. So Postgres operator, um, we have I think now 700 clusters on, on Kubernetes. Um, of course there are most of them also um, dev clusters, um, but this is what you can check out. And even uh, more crazy, 
don't be fooled by the slide. The copy editors added Amazon on top of Elasticsearch, but it's not Amazon Elasticsearch. Um, it's actually Elasticsearch on Kubernetes, and uh, this operator does the same trick with um, draining. And more interestingly, with this operator for Elasticsearch is that it does auto-scaling. So Elasticsearch is not necessarily elastic, as you might know, uh, but this operator tries to do the best, so it does um, auto-scaling, and this powers our main e-commerce website. So, SLAs for cluster updates. We have a lot of customers, so they want to know uh, when we update clusters. Of course, we don't want to ask 200 teams when we can update clusters, so we want to update them all the time, if necessary. And um, yeah, so we have some rules for that. So we respect pod disruption budgets, so the teams can define their own pod disruption budgets and say, okay, don't disrupt my application. Um, but, of course, in the end, we always need to update. So we have an SLA that we will forcefully terminate pods after three days. So this means you cannot run a job or a process longer than three days uh, because you will be terminated. Uh, but it also means if you did a configuration mistakes, uh, mistake with pod disruption budgets, um, then we terminate anyway. And for non-production after eight hours. Also, we allow all our development teams to block cluster updates at any time. This gives them um, better yeah, confidence that they can be sure that nothing happens. Maybe there's a very important workshop right now or some critical rollout they will want to do and just be safe. Okay, no cluster updates happen in this time frame. So our small kubectl wrapper uh, has a command for this where they can block cluster updates at any time. This is also important for establishing a trust relationship um, with our internal customers because we want to do cluster updates anytime, but we also provide the means to stop us at any point, right? Okay, let's have a quick look at um, what actually the application um, development teams see and use for deployments. So in the repository of an application, you find a number of YAML files um, in a deploy apply folder, and you find a CI CD pipeline configuration called delivery YAML. And uh, when we apply all these Kubernetes manifests, um, we, are, we are kind of kubectl, and also what is not shown on this slide, we also allow using CloudFormation uh, YAML files in this repository. So teams can deploy on the application arbitrary Kubernetes manifest, but they can also use CloudFormation to create an S3 bucket or an RDS. Uh, database or IAM roles, etc., and they just put this in the same folder. Ingress YAML, so this is, um, should be familiar for Kubernetes users. I just show this uh, because this Ingress YAML in the folder I just showed actually does a lot in the background um, because what we um, use on our Kubernetes clusters is multiple tools like external DNS, our own ALB Ingress controller, um, and more which barely gives uh, you an ALB uh, load balancer. Uh, select the right SSL certificate, so you don't have to deal with any certificate IDs, and create the right DNS name. So barely just by specifying this host name in this Ingress YAML, you get a, a full endpoint um, TLS secured uh, with a DNS name uh, pointing to your application, right? So this is kind of a relatively simple interface for our development teams. Then the deployment itself happens with our own continuous delivery platform, sadly not open source, um, but we barely started with Jenkins and then created our own to um, make this more convenient uh, for our development teams. The deployment um, has some feedback mechanisms so you can see when the pods start up, but under the hood it's kubectl apply basically, and um, you build it, you run it, means you also need to operate and have emergency um, operations if there is an incident. Um, so we have means for teams to get access to production clusters. So you can normally not write to the Kubernetes API for production, but with this small wrapper you can uh, get emergency access and uh, say either there is an incident, I really need to fix something, or a colleague approves my request and then um, I can um, operate on production. You also need to have some visibility on, um, on your Kubernetes clusters. Of course, you have the kubectl command line, um, but there is also Kubernetes web view, which 
especially helps in our case because we have so many different clusters. And um, I always saw in our internal chats and someone says or writes in the chat, okay, I have a problem. Someone else says, okay, do kubectl describe. And then the other one um, posts the output. So this is not really efficient. So with Kubernetes WebView, you have permalinks to your different resources and have a similar feature set like in kubectl. Also support searching across clusters. Uh, which is helpful if you have so many. So in this case, I just search for etcd operator if someone has de deployed etcd operator in some cluster. And um, this is yeah, nice to deal with so many clusters. Also has a dark mode. And um, it really also helps for platform perspective. So here, for example, I just select all nodes and um, can see um, which cluster is still not updated to or which node is still not with 1.14. Um, so I can badly uh, see this all the time in um, kind of real time. And in kubectl, I would need to do some for loop to go across all clusters, and then I would have the same. Here I have it in the UI. Also, if you have an incident, um, you want to know if this is only happening in one cluster or many clusters. Um, so here I find just all pending pods across all clusters, which, again, I could do with kubectl, but then I would need to do a for loop or some parallel uh, calls to get this for our clusters. Okay, now I said we have 140 clusters, so and I said we don't want pet clusters and uh, don't want manual operations. Uh, so what about configuration drift? Right, it's easy to say that, but if you have so many clusters, uh, there is probably changes between clusters. So what we try to do is keeping everything the same. There are some things which are different between uh, across clusters. Um, um, uh, different between clusters, like secrets, for example, for external logging providers. Also, node pool sizes are different. And um, these are configured with this config items and cluster registry. But for the actual size of the worker pools, um, this is defined by cluster autoscaling. So if we look at the typical cluster, we see the cluster size um, looks like this over the day. So the cluster autoscaler scales up and down. So the Min-max settings are configured once for the cluster, but usually max is pretty high, and then the rest is done by cluster autoscaling. So cluster autoscaling is a horizontal scaling, but you also have infrastructure components. And uh, this is a little bit more tricky because infrastructure components uh, you also need to scale, and some of them you only can scale vertically. So I don't know if you have experience with Prometheus, um, but if you do, then you know that you like the, if you just use Prometheus, you need to scale memory up um, if you have more data points or more nodes or more infrastructure. Uh, so what we do here is using vertical pod autoscaler to scale memory for these uh, infrastructure components. So in this way, we don't need to tweak these settings if a team or a cluster now needs more resources and then we need, oh, now we need to scale up Prometheus for this cluster. So here we use vertical pod autoscaler. And how this looks like is uh, here, so memory for Prometheus on this graph. And as you can see, it looks fine. And then at the end, it uh, goes to 9 gigabytes up, which is also fine. Probably the cluster grew, or someone did a, now a load test or something, and we have a lot of more resources in the cluster, and Prometheus needs to uh, use more memory. And this is something we don't really want to care about. So we use this cluster, auto, uh, the vertical pod autoscaler, to do this for us. We don't use the vertical pod autoscaler for critical applications itself because it still has the problem of needing to restart a pod for changing the resources. But for these things like Prometheus, for external DNS, etc., this is not a problem because it can be kind of down for uh, a few milliseconds or a second or so. Um, so this is working great. Okay, monitoring and cost efficiency. So we have many clusters and we also need to keep an overview and make sure that this is not going uh, crazy with so many clusters and teams. Um, so first of all, we have our own monitoring system, which we call Zmon. has this nice monster logo here. And how this works, and this really helps in our case, it has something called dynamic entity registration. So we only define checks once and all these different entities, like new AWS accounts, new deployments, new pods, um, new whatever, 
they just come into the system and then these checks are automatically applied if the attributes match. So we can define, okay, we want this amount of worker nodes ready and be alarmed if it's not the case, then this automatically applies to all the clusters. Then for the actual 24-7 alerting, we use Optioney. And in the cluster itself, like I already said, we also have Prometheus deployed, but we don't really use Prometheus for the development teams. We only use it inside each cluster to scrape infrastructure metrics and then Zetmon scrapes the Prometheus metrics again. So Prometheus is not exposed to our development teams. Then for like these number of clusters and development teams, of course, this means that we have a large number of applications probably 3,000, 4,000 uh, microservices, and you also want to keep an overview about that. So we use um, open tracing um, and instrumented all uh, relevant services. And we use Lightstep, uh, but of course open tracing works also with Yeek as an open source um, provider. Okay, so cost efficiency is something um, you want to have an eye on, right? AWS builds are not cheap. Um, or like not so small in numbers. And um, um, there is one tool I created, this Kubernetes resource report, which shows you some insights uh, for a Kubernetes uh, cluster. So you can see uh, what are the resources uh, a cluster uses and also calculates the US dollar amount by using the EC2 uh, pricing information. And this is especially in important if we want to check what teams use and uh, what we found is actually um, the largest like, lever we would have is uh, the slack cost. And what slack cost means is uh, the difference between requested resources and actual usage. So this is actually the same on Fargate, right? Or on any other system where you request resources and then uh, use an amount of resources. Um, so you can request two gigabytes of memory, but if you only use 200 megabytes, then <coughs> Uh, you waste money. And uh, basically this report shows us um, what amount of US dollars per month are wasted and uh, we can do some policing and say, okay, dear teams, let's save 13K per month um, if you reduce your resource request. Teams, of course, need to adopt their resource requests and um, we use Grafana for uh, tracking pods and um, showing all the different information you want to see. Um, so you can adapt um, your resource request by looking at the dashboard and seeing, okay, I use this amount of TPU or memory and then uh, can reduce um, the real requested resources and save money. Of course, the human doesn't or shouldn't do this manually. Uh, so vertical pod autoscaler VPA could do this for us. We also use it, but not for critical application, uh, applications. But like I said, this would restart the pods and uh, cause disruptions. Uh, this is hopefully fixed in the future. So on last KubeCon there were, uh, KubeCon, there were multiple talks about this, um, making pods no longer immutable, but uh, allowing resource requests uh, to be changed on the fly, which would help. Uh, right now we use VPA only for non-critical things. And here you can see how this would look like on this um, lower um, chart. You can see the real usage and um, this um, yeah, step curve is the resource request and limits which are adopted by VPA. Another topic is uh, with so many development teams and clusters uh, that usually people deploy something and then don't really use it or it's just test and nobody works on the weekend. Um, so what we do is actually downscale um, cluster deployments during the weekend and off hours. Uh, so this is a small open source tool which works on any Kubernetes cluster, uh, regardless of uh, AWS or not. The same for things people forget, right? So it's easy to deploy a prototype or just do a demo on a, uh, on a talk or a workshop and then uh, yeah, ha people hap happily forget to de delete it again. So I created this Kubernetes janitor, which barely allows uh, people to set TTLs or just define a rule. Okay, if you don't set this label, just delete everything after a few days. So AWS has spot nodes, spot instances, 
So of course, we also try to leverage this to save costs. Here's a screenshot of this cube resource report where you can actually see a cluster where both spot and non-spot are used. And as you can see, uh, you probably know this already, right? You can save 90%, 70%, a large amount of money by using spot. And Kubernetes is perfect for this because in, with spot instances, you usually want to use different instance types uh, because uh, a certain instance type might be out. And um, then you get another instance type and this instance type might be bigger. So if uh, you barely only run the traditional workloads where you have uh, one application and horizontally autoscaling with the autoscaling group, uh, then you wouldn't use this ad additional capacity uh, but with Kubernetes, you can use this, right? If you get a double, um, uh, double the size node, then of course more pods would fit on it. So it's a perfect con combination, I would say, uh, container orchestration and um, spot instances. So here you can see the spot instances actually double the size, but much cheaper. Okay, so you might ask this talk like I said before, it's not about EKS, but still you might ask, okay, how much is this Salando setup special or different from vanilla, whatever vanilla Kubernetes means? So let's have a quick look what's, uh, what might be differences. So first of all, we use our own Salando OAuth, which is backed by Google um, IDP uh, for API access. Okay, there's nothing totally special. Everybody has their own OAuth provider or OIDC. Second point is a little bit more interesting. We disabled CPU throttling in all our clusters. This is a kubelet flag. I have a different talk about this and you find in, yeah, in the wide internet um, more about why this might make sense. This is actually not so much to do with Docker or containers. Uh, this is really about the kernel and uh, how the kernel uses C group uh, limits and barely CPU CFS quota, how this works, and what are the problems with CPU throttling. You can also disable CPU throttling with EKS if you don't have the managed nodes. You barely have then to use this kubelet flag to disable it. Next item, we prevent memory overcommit. Why do we do this? Um, in Kubernetes world, you have requests and limits. and um, you can badly say, okay, I request two gigabytes of memory, but I could actually use four gigabytes, so my limit is higher than the request. But this is a little bit dangerous because it only works if everybody is a nice citizen and nobody actually goes uh, higher than this request and you uh, have no memory pressure on the node. So what we want to prevent is actually the real system out of memory on the node, and that's why we say memory requests and memory limits have to be the same. So we don't allow this memory overcommit. This makes it a little bit more less efficient from cost perspective, but prevents um, this worst case that the node actually has high um, memory pressure and then there is a, a, real, kernel, a real memory killer uh, coming. And then it will never kill what you wanted it to kill, but something else, right? And then you have um, very bad situations. Ingress, so ingress, there are a lot of ways to configure ingress with Kubernetes. What we do is we use external DNS, which we actually also maintain, which is on the Kubernetes um, GitHub organization. And external DNS creates DNS entries for load balancers. Uh, so you can definitely, this is definitely recommended to use um, in any setup, like with EKS or without. Then we use Skipper, our own HTTP proxy, and we use AWS AOB in front of it. And I will ju just show you um, how this looks like. We have some custom resource definitions. Um, nothing totally crazy. I already mentioned Postgres operator. Of course, this has a custom resource definition. We use this downscaler to downscale um, out of office hours. And our DNS setup is a little bit special. Let's have a quick look at ingress. So in our ingress setup, we have two HTTP proxy in this path. So the incoming uh, request on the top hits the ALB, which also does a TNS, TLS termination. And then the request goes to our skipper proxy, which runs on the nodes. And the ALB, in our case, doesn't do any routing. So it's not doing any pass routing. It just does TLS termination and I think the redirect. Um, and skipper does actually uh, a bit more and um, 
has more logic to do OAuth verification, to do rate limiting, to do pass routing, to do routing on any attributes and um, things you can imagine. And then the skipper goes directly to the pod endpoints. So we decided to use this because we knew that the ALB is pretty limited with the routing capabilities it has, and we knew that we want more capabilities in our ingress. Uh, that's why we have this double, um, yeah, this two layers. You can also use uh, this with something else like Nginx controller or Envoy or what, what else. Uh, but Skipper already powers our shop before we started with Kubernetes, um, and it's open source. Uh, so we knew it works, and it's uh, really only for HTTP routing and uh, scales perfectly. DNS. So this is a little bit tricky topic because uh, we also had an incident about this, as you can see here in the, in the bottom. Uh, so we had a, a total DNS outage, which uh, you find on my list with failure stories. Um, but we decided afterwards to redesign our DNS setup and uh, use CoreDNS per node. So we use CoreDNS with a daemon set, and it runs on every node, and DNS mask for additional caching. CoreDNS itself can also cache, but we did some performance tests and found out that CoreDNS is not so memory efficient, so DNS mask, which is written in C, is much more efficient. Um, so we use this combination, and this works very well for us. Um, this is also a topic for EKS because EKS had at the beginning only one pod doing DNS, which is clearly not enough if you have real workloads in your cluster. Now I think they have two core DNS pods, uh, but still you definitely should check if this is enough for your workloads and how uh, DNS works in Kubernetes. Um, so we wanted to be on the safe side, that's why we use this daemon set setup, which you can of course uh, check out on GitHub. Uh, but like I said, this would be something, even if you use EKS, uh, check out your DNS setup and if this is enough for your scale and of workloads. So I mentioned Kubernetes uh, clusters are set up in pairs. So we have non-production and production. And in general, the non-production is similar to whatever, uh, a random plain hosted Kubernetes setup. So you can run a Docker Hub container, you can uh, find something in the internet and then use kubectl apply. So this is nice for prototyping. But for production, we don't allow write access directly to the Kubernetes API, so only CI/CD. We have additional compliance webhooks, and we flag our own Docker images if whether they are production ready or not. Also on production, with these webhooks, like I mentioned, um, we check that every pod has a label, an application label, and this really helps. So first of all, of course, we want to know um, who owns this pod and uh, which team it is. Um, so our application registry keeps all our few thousand microservices or applications in there, and every application is, of course, owned by a team, so we can always look up what the team is. And this is also used by this cube resource report you saw earlier to present this Kubernetes costs. So um, this way we have always uh, like a tracking back from code container, applica pod application to team. Docker images must be built from master branch and built via our own continuous delivery platform. Uh, and only then you can use them in production. Just a side note, we don't have any rules or like strict constraints around namespaces, so teams can freely choose how they do their namespace setup. This is something I would now change, like in hindsight, um, but yeah, because teams, for example, use sometimes team namespaces, which is a bad idea because uh, yeah, teams as entities for infrastructure definitions are not really working out for us because it's um, yeah, too dynamic, teams change, applications change, move between teams. So I would definitely always recommend against um, using team as a scope for def defining infrastructure um, um, things. So, but right now they can choose any namespace they want. Another topic is, of course, with so many teams and uh, a small platform team, 
is um, how they can actually learn how to use Kubernetes and um, how to do everything. So we really invested heavily in doing good documentation. So we have this, uh, what we call a cloud native application runtime uh, documentation page, which is uh, powered by MacDocs. And um, this has different how-tos and tutorials, et cetera, how to use everything. And this would be, for example, the page uh, helping teams how to set the right resource requests and limits. Because as I said before, they are end-to-end -end responsible. So uh, they have to know how to use everything. Um, so this should be documented somewhere. Then how to communicate with so many teams. Um, of course, there are announcements for bigger changes, like also Kubernetes rollouts. But we also have a monthly newsletter where we try to have a way of saying um, what is new and what they can use right away and how they can benefit from it. So usually we have a, a rule to write it in a form like you can now use XYZ for achieving whatever. So here, for example, this is a, a mention of ZQPCTL tunnel where people uh, can use uh, this command to easily access um, um, like existing Elastic Cache or RDS instances uh, via this command and barely access this from the local machine. Okay, so summary. <coughs> Seamless updates. This is really important and also worked out for us. So we started with Kubernetes 1.4 and like I said, we now roll out 1.15 and we could seamlessly update. We had, of course, sometimes uh, smaller bumps in the right uh, but this worked out great so far with our setup and this continuous delivery uh, of Kubernetes clusters and also running end-to-end -end tests all the time. We try to avoid pet clusters using cluster autoscaler, VPA, um, yeah, barely really making sure that everything looks the same, which can look the same, and so we don't need to worry about what the team does uh, tomorrow. Um, hopefully we don't need to care about it. They can just start and uh, think scale. Small disruptions might be normal because we also do always the cluster updates. End-to-end -end tests are great. This is definitely something you might want to check out even if you use EKS um, or other uh, Kubernetes setups because um, yeah, you will probably install other infrastructure on top of your cluster you also want to test. Documentation and communication is of course an issue if you're a platform team and have many customers. And um, yeah, this is barely a quick summary of the current state. Let's have a quick outlook on the future. So 1.16 is interesting because 1.16 deprecates some API versions. And this means in our case, as you could see, Kubernetes manifests are directly in Git repos, so we probably need some automated pull requests to update API versions for people who didn't update so far. Uh, so this will be interesting the API version updates for 1.16. We definitely want to improve autoscaling. What I didn't show um, in my talk so far is that we already support custom metrics for horizontal pod autoscaler, uh, but we still want to improve on it. We already support SQS queue lengths, uh, skipper requests per second, um, and Prometheus, Prometheus queries uh, for custom metrics, but we also want to further improve on that. We want to improve our own traffic switching approach, which we call StackSet. I didn't show this in the talk. It's also on GitHub, uh, but we want to support automatic rollbacks based on, on metrics, uh, which is already um, worked on in an alpha mode. We definitely want to further migrate. So Stups, the previous infrastructure is end of life in March 2020. So the teams who didn't migrate so far um, already get a lot of emails from us and we engage with them and so we still have to help more teams to, to do the remaining migrations. Uh, so we run everything on Kubernetes. Cost efficiency is a topic. So right now we only mix in some spot instances and in some clusters. We run all test clusters with spot, uh, but we want to run maybe nearly 100% on spot at some point, or at least this would be an option if uh, this is possible without major disruptions where where this applies. We have a VPC CNI plugin, which is used by EKS. What we use right now is Flannel, so relatively conservative. We already looked at it. There will be probably a new version, so we'll look at it again. Um, there is a new um, IAM um, tooling from, from Amazon. Uh, right now we use Kubeto IAM, uh, so we'll also look into this. 
And also, of course, we are always in talks with EKS team, uh, but we'll definitely not switch to EKS very soon because we have so many clusters and we have a very solid setup so, so far. So we are more interested in the, in the tooling and the, the infrastructure integration Amazon provides, which we can already use without switching to EKS. Did everything work out? Yes, mostly, but of course there are also failure stories to share. Maybe you don't know this page yet, or you know, but um, I'm barely trying to find failure stories uh, all over the place. And there are, of course, also some talks from me or, um, or others about uh, Kubernetes failures, and at least these three are from Zalando. So check these out. And um, maybe some takeaway for you, uh, common pitfalls, which are, um, yeah, digested from, from these failure stories is definitely end-to-end -end tests. I see uh, multiple companies doing Kubernetes, regardless on which cloud provider or how they do it, um, but they do this, like whatever, I have three clusters, one big cluster, some test clusters, uh, but then there's a the question, okay, how do we update? Uh, how do we do this whole life cycle of, of Kubernetes upgrades? Um, so, uh, this is something if you do this still manually and don't have proper end-to-end -end tests, then this is something um, I think to um, to improve. Readiness and liveness probes is something, um, not sure if you know all the details about it. I have a blog post about this. This is um, tricky because also the developers need to configure this correctly in combination with their application. Um, so you really need to know what what is right to, uh, to do in this uh, situation, and this can lead to dangerous um, situations. If you configure a liveness probe and suddenly your fleet of 200 pods is down because um, you used Spring Boot and Spring Boot uh, with Redis data adapter, and this has a hiccup, and then all your pods are restarted, so um, understand readiness and liveness probes. Resource requests and limits, I already mentioned it. It's important for cost efficiency, but also CPU throttling out of memory, etc. a lot of things to, to consider, at least know about. DNS, I already mentioned it, also relevant for EKS setup. Um, does my DNS scale? Um, how does it actually work? Do I see five second timeouts or anything like that? Then maybe read up on how DNS works in Kubernetes. And um, yeah, most of the stuff I showed so far is open source. Um, there is also a Git repo with more public presentations from Zalando. There you also find this failure talks and previous Kubernetes uh, talks from, from myself. Okay, so we still have some, some minutes left. We have a microphone, so if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer them. Thank you. <laughs>